faculty, uh, actively works in the surgical ICU as well as the operating room. Um, to give you a little bit of background, Dr. Anders did her anesthesia residency at uh, University of North Carolina, um, did her critical care fellowship at Vanderbilt, and here is uh, in the process of getting her master's in epidemiology. Um, she has uh, attended various courses and, and obtained certifications from a variety of uh, places that focus on uh, healthcare improvement. For example, she um, attended the Institute for Healthcare Improvement Patient Safety uh, Executive Development Program, so the IHI's program there. Um, has done a number of other uh, training as well in, that, in this particular area, which she's going to discuss today. So, welcome, Megan. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for everybody for having me. It's a um, real pleasure and honor to be back here for the Maryland Critical Care Project and also to speak with all you guys, some of whom I've had the chance to work with so far and some of whom I'm looking forward to working with in the surgical ICU. So um, I got an uh, email from Mike a couple months ago and he wanted to know, could I talk about safety and quality improvement in the ICU? Which um, the more you get into talking about learning about this field, um, sort of like saying, hey, can you talk about surgery? And can you do it in an hour? And can you make the fellows stay awake um, and have them get something out of it that they haven't heard before? Um, I think specifically he asked me to talk about why it's important and the whole process, the whole process for doing it appropriately, and goes the word. <laughs> so I said, sure, no problem. And here I am. So um, what I'm going to do today is try to present you with some pearls um, really give some practical stuff. Uh, I've seen a lot of projects go really well. I've seen a lot of projects fail um, for reasons that were potentially avoidable. Um, and what I'd like to do today is loosely give you some of these pearls um, and let you uh, kind of group them largely into safety culture, um, some information about the science of quality improvement, which is itself a huge topic, um, and then physician leadership in safety and quality improvement, which I think is a really um, important thing to take forward from your residencies and to take forward from your fellowship because whether you like it or not, you're going to be seen as a leader and a role model in safety and quality throughout your career. Um, so I was gonna do a little bit of introduction to myself. I think Mike actually covered it very well. I got my interest in safety and quality as a resident. Um, I was fortunate to attend a um, seminar at Duke on uh, patient safety, leadership, and quality improvement. That really kind of spiked my interest. Um, and it's gone for there, from there. Um, here at University of Maryland, I was in the right place at the right time um, when we needed a safety project around um, surgical airway management. And that's uh, been kind of a bridge for me into a lot more programs. Right now, I serve as the um, safety and quality officer for the Department of Anesthesiology. And I think on our last project tracking, we had 46 active projects um, <laughs> that we were either directing or involved with um, through all different phases of perioperative and, and post-surgical care. So I'm going to make some assumptions about you as my audience today. Um, if these don't apply, please keep that in mind, um, and I will be happy to talk about that later, about how you can kind of um, fill in some of the backstory here. Um, I'm going to assume by this point in your training, this is not your first talk about patient safety and quality improvement. Is that true? Anybody, this is your very first time somebody sitting in front of you or standing in front of you? Okay. Um, for that, I'm really grateful. When I have audiences that have uh, more people from older generations of physicians, um, sometimes this stuff is new to them and it needs a longer introduction, but I'm going to try to skip a lot of the background and really making that compelling story because I think you guys have been come through your training um, really understanding the importance of this. So specifically, I'm going to assume that you know about the kind of beginning of the patient safety movement with To Air as Human, the Institute of Medicine report that really kind of 
um, sparked a, a flame of fire um, in the patient safety world. Um, I'm going to understand, and I'm going to assume that you understand um, what we mean when we say patient safety, that it's the prevention of errors um, and adverse effects to patients associated with the provision of health care. I'm going to assume um, that you know that there are scientific fields of study around accident prevention and risk management. Um, if I would have had a little bit more time, I think, before this lecture, I almost made you guys a patient safety bingo card. Um, and Swiss cheese model was going to be on that, like, kind of front, and that was going to be the free space. Because, um, you know, when we talk about accident theory and, and ways to look at, um, you know, systemically preventing safety events and risk, uh, that comes up pretty frequently. I'm going to assume that you know that healthcare strives to become a more highly reliable organization, and we often invoke things like aviation, nuclear power, um, aircraft carriers, um, you know, chemical processing plants as models for reliability, that we are trying to achieve that level of reliability in the processes that we use and the care that we deliver. And I'm going to assume that you do not need me to tell you um, that, you know, in that one Institute of Medicine report that kind of started this all, there's an estimate that um, you know, three jumbo jets worth of patients were dying every two days as a result of preventable error. Those numbers at this point getting a little bit dated, uh, but I think still very compelling that we, we all can probably think of patients who died from a preventable error or an adverse event associated with the healthcare um, that they did not have when they came in from the hospital. So urinary tract infections with sepsis, central line infections, airway disasters, um, pressure ulcers, you know, things that really contribute substantially to morbidity and mortality for our patients. All right, so one thing I wanted to kind of set straight very early is the idea of safety versus quality improvement versus what's what. And it's very simple because safe care is part of quality care. Um, you've probably seen these six domains from the Institute of Medicine, efficient, timely, effective, person-centered, equitable, um, but I put at the top and center because it's my bias um, that care needs to be above all safe. Um, there's this idea, um, you know, sometimes people will use QA slash QI of what is quality assurance, what is quality improvement, and I think quality improvement is generally the more favored term. Um, quality assurance is sort of just measuring compliance with standards. It uses retrospective inspection methods, it's, you know, somebody's watching you wash your hands, um, and that can be part of a quality improvement project, but the activity of recording whether or not you're complying is a quality assurance activity. Um, in that kind of mindset, the attitude is a little bit more required, it's a little bit more defensive, um, the outliers in the process tend to be individual. It's Dr. McCurdy that didn't wash his hands today, um, and, uh, or kind of the bad apple mentality. Um, and it's focused largely on the medical care providers, physicians, nurses, the, the team. The outcome in this case is seen as the responsibility of very few people. Contrast that with the idea of quality improvement, which takes a much broader view. A unit that's doing quality improvement is continuously looking at the processes, um, figuring out where they're meeting standards. So they still do need to measure some of those same things that you're measuring with quality assurance, um, but trying to figure out ways actively to make things better. So if Dr. McCurdy didn't wash his hands, I'm just going to keep picking on you. Um, you know, was there a hand gel? Was it in a place that he could reach it? Um, you know, was it you know accessible to him on the way out? Starts to look beyond the individual and see the um, outcome as the responsibility of the whole team and also the organization as a whole. Um, the attitude is chosen. We're choosing to work on this project so that we can reduce our infection rates. Um, it's more focused on prevention and more concerned with systems and processes. Right. So I sometimes will use them somewhat interchangeably because I think quality assurance is a necessary part of quality improvement. Um, and we can explain a little bit more about that as I go here. So if you take away one thing from this talk today, it's that there's a fundamental difference in organizations, and organization could be a you know, whole hospital, but more commonly we see it on the unit level 
or on the team level. And these units either are or are not what we call a learning system. So the, the kind of concept here is, you know, does this unit do continuous organizational learning? Are they always looking to improve, always looking to understand what their outcomes are? Versus, do we see QI as an isolated project? And this is kind of my favorite quote. We already did the QI this year. Um, you know, that where it's seen as like a mandate to do one project and it's not seen as everybody's responsibility. It's not seen as part of the daily work of that unit um, to do um, continuous quality improvement. Um, you, a lot of times if an organization is not doing continuous QI, you'll see them focusing a lot on, let's say, the root cause analysis after a bad event happens. Root cause analysis is a useful tool, but um, organizations who do continuous quality improvement aren't just looking at events that happened with bad outcomes. They're looking at what we call near miss or close call. It doesn't, in, in 2015, for um, organizations that are doing um, continuous quality improvement, it doesn't matter if the error actually hit the patient or not. Those are all seen as learning opportunities. Um, the, con the continuous learning um, environments are either are looking constantly for what we call defects, which is anything in the process that doesn't run the way you'd like it. There can be a clinical defect, there can be a cultural defect, a process defect, and all of them are improvable if you can identify them and learn to address them. Um, and hopefully this is starting to work its way into the way we do business in the intensive care unit in 2015. I'm a little biased, I think we're, we're succeeding at that better and better every year, um, and hopefully you feel the same. The one thing I wanted to point out is sometimes we'll talk about you know, systems and what does it mean to be a systems thinker. That can be a little bit of a heady concept, so I wanted to make that very concrete. The major features of healthcare systems are people, the values that drive activity, so what the leadership is setting as priorities, um, what they're rewarding, what they're penalizing, um, the workflow, the IT infrastructure, epic. Right. Um, that's a feature of the system and it's going to become a, a big one uh, in our changing system very soon. Um, and then just other ex external influences that impact day-to-day -day function. Um, you have to kind of account for all these if you're going to look and think about a system in, in the process, a system that a process lives in. All right, so um, kind of to bring this um, a little bit more full circle, when I think about a project, um, I tend to think about it in this triad form or trilogy form where you have different phases of the project. In quality planning, you are developing a new process, um, ideally using the principles of reliability and high reliability um, organizations, and you're developing it from the beginning. So we wanted to do an ICU handover process. We just sort of start, we didn't really have a formal one, so there was nothing to go from, we had to sort of start from scratch with that. In the quality control phase, you're monitoring that process to make sure that it's delivering the outcome that you wanted. Is it working as designed? Are you able to do the process every time? And if so, is it giving you the outcome that you thought you would get from that? Um, if you find that it's not, then you are in a quality improvement phase where you're gonna take a look, see what changes need to be made. Um, the process is not delivering the outcomes that you expected, so it must be improved. And you can see how this can become um, circular and you may move back and forth over time. Um, a process can be charted over time with identification of these phases. And I think this is a really good conceptual model because sometimes when you get into you know, okay, I'm gonna you know, work on this. You can feel like you're really wading into the middle of something and you don't really understand where to start. So this is a, um, a sample diagram just sort of illustrating those phases. On the left, you don't really, you know, you're doing your planning, you're doing your conceptualization, you're trying to use the best evidence, the best reliable processes to make that you know, first foray into that first um, ORICU handover, as the case may be. Um, and then you start to be able to graph some type of outcome. And this is just a generic outcome on this chart. Um, lower is better, and you always want to know which way is better when you're looking at a run chart. Um, and here they're graphing um, time versus cost um, 
the cost of poor quality. I think that's a pretty generic um, way of looking at this. So you can see that um, you're in a um, quality control phase and you're um, in that first kind of, in this phase you're in a quality control phase, your process is in control, it's you know, moving you know, without a lot of variation, but it's not as good as you would want it to be. And here you have a random outlier value. Um, but here the, the team or the organization is gonna take on a quality improvement effort and try to establish a new baseline. So to be in control when we talk about a process just means to have a consistent baseline. Um, it may or may not be the baseline that you're aiming for. Right. So the, for the first section, I'm gonna talk a little bit about patient safety culture. Um, this is a concept, has anybody taken a patient safety culture survey before? Three, one, skulls, okay. Um, has anybody ever been in a unit where they presented any kind of results about that unit's patient safety culture? Um, got some work to do here. So I think it's really important when you embark on any type of quality improvement um, to really understand uh, the culture that you're working in and the importance of that culture. And this can be really tough, um, you know, whether it's going to a new unit as a fellow and wanting to make an impact in that unit, or more likely when you leave fellowship and you start your job to kind of go in, you've got some great ideas, and those ideas are gonna interface with that unit's culture, whether it's positive, negative, doesn't exist at all in terms of um, consistency. The patient safety culture is the core values and behaviors of the leaders and individuals in that organization that emphasize safety over competing goals. Okay? And so competing goals could be efficiency, cost, um, you know, personal satisfaction, leaving work early, you know, any, any, any other goal. Um, but a healthy patient safety culture is going to emphasize safety over um, those competing goals, not only on the individuals who are doing the work, but in the leaders and the way that they reward behavior. Um, so culture matters, and I put this picture up um, of jumping into the water, because I kind of envision this as, you know, you need to know, are there rocks? Is there a riptide? You know, is the water warm? You gotta kind of gotta know what you're jumping into, and that applies on two levels. The culture matters when you're thinking about jumping in if you're a junior staff member and you're trying to figure out what's gonna happen if you speak up because you think a, a safety event is gonna happen. And this is on the really, really micro level. Are you gonna get made fun of? Are you gonna get supported by your colleagues if you, um, you know, bring your concerns uh, to their attention? On the macro level, culture matters because if you're gonna be a physician walking into a unit and you're, you, know, you have an idea to, um, let's say, do a project around improving airway safety, which was mine, um, you have to know kind of what that culture is gonna give back to you and what your barriers are gonna be. So learning about that can be really helpful. There's very distinct and observable traits that are associated with healthy patient safety cultures. Um, and they're most easily measured, or not most frequently measured, most easily measured by using um, standardized patient safety culture surveys. Um, I had a kind of unique experience when I was a resident. It turns out one of my first ICUs I worked in was probably one of the best for culture, I would say, um, that I've ever encountered and possibly in the country. So this is getting to be too many years ago now. Um, but the University of North Carolina's pediatric ICU had this phenomenal culture and it was a fun place to work. I wanted to be there. And the patients, you could tell, they enjoyed, you know, to the extent that you can enjoy having care in ICU, the families, you know, were really satisfied with the care that the kids were getting. Um, when the safety culture is good, we know that patients are safer. Um, so they've done some actual analytic studies on this. Um, in one, they looked at different patient safety indicators. So, you know, do patients suffer from these um, likely preventable com complications? And they found that if, you, um, if your, your unit scored one standard deviation higher 
on patient safety culture scores, so a positive um, score. It was associated with a 10% decrease in your composite um, the harm events risk. Um, patients are also more satisfied. Culture can account for up to 18% in the variance of patient willingness to recommend your unit or hospital, which is a pretty substantial portion. Um, and then, the, this is interesting, staff are more satisfied. And when you walk into a unit with a good culture, you can feel it. So your turnover tends to be lower in a place that has a better culture. So there's a lot of reasons to want to invest and pay attention to um, safety culture. So as I said, this can be measured, um, it's most commonly measured with AHRQ safety, um, safety Culture Survey, which is a free tool. Um, there's actually a regulatory requirement from the Joint Commission to be looking at your safety culture to measure it. So this data is available for the units you work in, whether or not it's AHRQ survey or not. Um, so for instance, this is some of the um, 2015 survey results for my department of anesthesiology, and this slide is actually a slide that I presented to our department, um, kind of highlighting some of the findings that we, um, that we saw. So um, this is just sort of, this is a slide where we're showing that people think we have patient safety problems, um, but they also think that we have pretty good systems and um, procedures that prevent them. And I kind of interpreted that mixed result as, you know, anesthesiology is very, you know, high risk, a lot of critical events happening all the time. People are really cognizant that we have um, a lot of opportunities for error. So if you go to a unit and you're interested in becoming, you know, part of that unit's structure for safety and quality, looking into the safety culture survey data and the history might be a good place to start. Um, it doesn't tell you what to do, but it can help raise some questions. Why are people so afraid to report events in this unit? And that can be a, be a stepping point for a conversation with staff um, that can lead your culture in a more positive direction. This is just another example. There's no end to the consulting groups that are willing to come out and help you assess your safety culture. Um, there's a lot of different ways to slice and dice and kind of break down and look and make a plan um, to either you know, fortify um, and, and reinforce your safety culture or to improve it if you're really not scoring. I like this um, kind of way to envision, you know, what the unit you work in looks like, um, starting with uh, sort of different levels of attention to safety culture. So at the bottom, um, and we're not going to do raise your hands if you've ever worked in this unit, but there's a pathologic culture. Who cares as long as we don't get caught? Right. So I think all of us can think of at least one example of that. The next level um, is a reactive culture. And this is where we say safety is important. We do lots of safety every time we have an accident. We really, we really do a lot of safety after the accident happens. Um, this is um, a uh, system that's doing a lot of root cause analysis. They always have money and time to do another root cause analysis. That money and time doesn't necessarily seem to pop up for a prospective quality improvement project, unfortunately. Um, in these units, there tends to be a concern about adverse publicity. There's an, maybe they've implemented an incident reporting system, but they're not really doing a lot with that data. In a systematic um, safety culture, data is harvested rather than used, and they're starting to put place, um, systems in place to manage risks. But where you really want to have your unit aiming for is um, in the proactive and generative phases. So in the proactive groups, they're seeking to eliminate those latent errors, that hole in the Swiss cheese, there's, there's your bingo, um, bingo entry. Um, there is a lot of attention in these units to near miss and close calls, and they're listening to the front line when the frontline staff bring up their concerns about safety. So there's a mechanism for everybody who takes care of patients to submit safety concerns that aren't related to a specific event. Um, and the, the leaders are listening to that and um, you know, giving that some, some real um, credibility. In a generative culture, safety is built into the way we work and think. This is how we do business here, uh, always looking for opportunities um, and respecting and anticipating the risk that they have. You can see as you move forward, trust and accountability increase. Informedness also increases. 
Um, the units that do the best at being proactive and generative are constantly giving the frontline providers feedback on how things are going, right? So does anybody here know the surgical site uh, infection rate for trauma? No, okay, so if you were in a generative culture, that would probably be, at least if you didn't know it off the top of your head, you could tell me where to find that, where that information would be, um, and you would understand the steps the organization was taking to try to improve that. That would be part of your job description is knowing and understanding what's going on there. I'm not picking on our institution, just kind of using that, um, an example I think is kind of common, um, you know, when we start to talk about communicating across an organization about our safety rules. So one example I wanted to give you if you're thinking about walking into a unit, you have no idea where to start. Um, and you probably should know um, in terms of this is a pretty common ICU program to have. I think it's used in over 1,100 ICUs across the country at this point. Is this comprehensive unit-based safety program. Has anybody heard of this? Okay, all right. Um, so this was actually developed by Peter Pernavost at Hopkins, kind of in, um, you know, just as we were starting to think more seriously and systematically and um, academically about safety. Um, along with AHRQ, and the tools are available on the AHRQ website. I have a um, link for that down there if you'd like to take a look. Um, it combines clinical best practices and the science of safety in a way that can be used by a unit without having to send everyone off to, you know, a big, long, week-long patient safety training. Um, um, tries to get it very, very practically into the staff's hands. So there's a toolkit online uh, about learning from defects. Remember, that's anything we think we can improve in our process. Um, using daily goals checklists, and this is going to sound very familiar, but you know, not that long ago, these weren't really common um, in all ICUs. Um, conducting morning briefings, where a physician leader meets with a um, you know, nurse manager for the unit, talks about admissions, discharges, which patients are sick right now, how's our staffing situation, who needs to go on a transport, so that the unit can plan its activities as a whole for the day. Um, Shadowing another professional, observing team care rounds, team checkups. These are all kind of tools. They're downloadable. They're two-page PDFs, and you can go out and do them in your unit. And it, even if you are only opening a conversation about safety and what we do in this unit, they can be really interesting and valuable to try out. Next, I'm going to talk a little bit about the science of quality improvement. And again, this is something you can spend, you know, you can take semester-long courses on multiple um, you can go spend a whole week learning about this. So I'm not going to be able to teach you all of this, but I want to give you a couple highlights, um, and especially a couple places that I've seen people sort of go astray when they're trying to um, work on quality improvement. So one of the things that, you know, once you start to say science of quality improvement, people get this um, kind of uh, real attachment to one um, change man management process or another. So this is a, a change management is a way to transition individuals, teams, and organizations into a desired future state. So it's very broad, it's used in business, it's used in healthcare, it's used um, in software development, all, all different kinds of things. Um, you may have heard um, of Lean or Six Sigma or other, other methods like that. But common to all of them, and I like this chart because it kind of just shows what each of the different um, systems calls these phases, is you start with determining your, pro your problems and setting your goals or setting your aims for your project. You define metrics and you identify potential improvements implement those improvements and execute the processes and do test cycles to sort of um, see if you can improve or refine that further. Um, check measurements and learn from results. And so you're kind of feeding that, um, that trilogy we talked about with the quality improvement, quality control, quality planning. Lean tends to focus on speed. Six Sigma tends to focus on quality and like eliminating you know, absolutely um, defects from you know, millions of uh, um, you know, tries through your patient care process. Um, because there's always another book to sell, you can combine them into Lean Six Sigma. 
This is the IHI's model for improvement. Have you guys done IHI modules for GMI? Okay. So this is the one you're probably most familiar with. Um, I like it a lot. Um, this it takes the plan, do, study, act cycle, and it adds on top of it just sort of that idea that you need to know how we're, um, what are we trying to accomplish, how do we know the change is going to be an improvement, um, defining our metrics, and then what changes can we make, um, and kind of puts that into a more thoughtful planning phase. Um, the truth is it probably doesn't matter which approach you take. It's best to have an organized approach. And a lot of institutions, you don't have to go do this on your own. A lot of institutions have consultants available um, you know, within the institution or you can um, find to help advise your team on some of these best practices. They might have you do some process mapping. Um, but the actual individual tools are usually pretty easy to learn on your own um, and, and very powerful. Um, so there might be tools for ma mapping, sampling, or, or data analysis that can be useful to you. Um, there's some experts that I've talked to that say that they vaguely, if you're going to really feel strongly about pursuing one, prefer lean, but I don't think um, that anybody in the healthcare community has come out one in favor of the other. One thing that is important, so in your um, what change can we make that will result in an improvement, is the right, is selecting the right change um, for your project. So you say, uh, I want to you know, improve the handoff between the OR and the ICU. This is like, I'm going to bring this up over and over because this is what we're working on now. Um, you know, how do you get started with that? You know, what changes are you gonna um, are you gonna make, and what changes are you going to test? Because it'd be very tempting to say, well, handoff would be much better if there, if the surgeon just came out, you know, with this paper and we did it this way. Clearly, that's the best way to do it. Right? That's a project that if you just try to go implement, this is our here, here's our new handoff process is um, is gonna fail if you haven't tested and started sort of started to understand if that's actually gonna work in your particular system, even if it worked great at the hospital down the street. So the first thing you need to do is set a measurable, um, clear aim and a timeline for achieving it. Um, and then you need to um, figure out your change concepts. These are little theories you have about what's gonna make this better. Um, you're seeking usefulness in this and not perfection. And I think that's really important because this is where you will drive your fellow clinicians and this is where you've been driven absolutely crazy is to try to get 100% on something. You wanna get something useful um, and you know unless it's getting the right side for your surgery it doesn't necessarily need to be hundred percent every single time um, they say copy from other institutions I don't like that I think it's really important that you consider adapting things so you can look in the evidence um, you can look at case reports of you know what other people have done but you still need to critically apply that you know what are the differences between that system and my system and how can I make this work um, where I am other places you can get your change concepts from critical thinking, observation of the current system, sometimes just walking in and seeing what it takes to do a task can be really revealing, um, especially if that's not part of your normal workflow. Uh, creative thinking, hunches, mental leaps, extrapolating from other situations, these can come from all over the place. Um, and you want to avoid, it when at all possible, what we call the low impact changes, right? Everybody who does safety or quality is guilty of this. Everyone has put up a poster, I've done that, Everyone's had an education session. That's going to be our change if we just educate people, right? So, does everybody know what a gym is? Yeah. Do you know where the gym is? Okay. Not knowing what a gym is or where it is is not why you're not exercising, right? So, having an education session to tell you where the gym is is, is not going to be the change that you need to start exercising. Um, and then sending out reminders. And this is a balance. There are some times where you just cannot get away. 
um, you know, with not informing people of the expectations or you know what a new process is. So these aren't never things, but they are very, very, very unlikely to be um, really effective change agents when used on their own, um, despite what uh, we would really hope would work. So um, if you put up a poster, your theory is that people are going to read the poster, they're going to take it personally, and they're going to change what they're going to do. And I would say maybe two to three percent of the people that you're trying to target will actually behave in that way, and the rest of them are going to need something else. Right? I think um, this is especially tough for people who are interested in safety and quality because we want the world to work that way, um, and, and it just doesn't. One thing you want to think about um, as you're developing your test of change, you are actually developing your first measure for your project. Did it work or not? Right? And when you are testing something, it never succeeds or fails. No matter what happens, you learn something from it. Right? So if I, um, you know, let's say, let's go back to the handoff example. If I'm going to use a new handoff sheet um, to test it, I'm going to give it to one surgeon. And I'm going to say, hey, can you try out this handoff sheet? And if they immediately throw it in the corner, uh, and then do, the, do what they normally did, that isn't a failure of my test. I learned something. For some reason, that didn't work for that person. It's on me to go say, hey, why didn't you use this? But you're, you're gathering data on your change theory, which is that using this handoff sheet is going to be more helpful to you. Um, if you fail, you can learn, and then you move on to the next test. Um, the goal of testing is learning. And it's really important that you take the right attitude in a quality improvement project when you're getting people to do this. How many people in this room have I roped into testing something for me? I know there's at least a couple of you guys in the surgical ICU. Try this for me, right? Just tell me what you think. If it doesn't work, it's gonna go away. And it's really important that people, A, believe you and, and that they hear that from you because the, 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 the first reaction for everybody, if you approach them with a piece of paper, is just to recoil and say, no, I'm already overworked. I don't want to do any more documentation. This is not going to help my life. I'm confident of it. I don't even have to try it. So you kind of have to use your diplomacy. You have to use your negotiation. You have to kind of get people on board with doing tests. And you have to promise that they're going to go away. Um, we're just trying it. We want to test it. People will automatically say, well, I didn't hear about this. So you haven't implemented this yet. And you say, no, 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 we're not, we're not there yet. We just want to learn. What your, your feedback is really valuable to this process. Once you try it with one person, if that works, you try it with three, then you try it with five, then you think about whether it'll work on night shift, right? You really don't want to get to implementing something unless you have a really good idea that it's going to work, right? And your good idea that's going to work has to be more than just you. You have to have some evidence based on your environment that it is going to work, right? So I really like this. I actually have this printed hanging up in my office because it really helps to ground me. I think a lot of projects have a great idea, they have a lot of enthusiasm, people want to spread them really early without really testing to make sure that they work. So it, it takes into account your current situation. Is your culture resistant, indifferent, or ready? Right? So if you have a culture that is used to doing QI projects, they're, you know, they, they see quality improvement as part of their work, that you're in that proactive regenerative culture, you might be ready. But for a lot of units you walk into, they're going to be resistant or indifferent. Um, and you really need to assess that critically, and that's where have, knowing your safety culture can come into this. Um, your current situation, you either have low or high confidence that your, that change idea is going to lead to improvement. Okay? And you may end up testing ideas that you don't think are great, and they work out, and ideas that you do think are great, and they're total flops. You also want to consider as a modifier that the cost of um, failure could be large or small. You know, do you have to go out and buy a whole new product, or could you just adapt something that you're already using? And this is going to tell you where you fall out in the grid, and I'm not going to read the whole thing to you, but you can see that the only things that you're going to implement without testing or even consider implementing without testing 
or a culture that's ready, high confidence that that's going to improve, um, and a very um, small cost of failure. And that's a very, very minority of projects, okay? Um, and then beyond that, you kind of have to think about that. So this is one of my, um, you know, one of my grounding things when I'm thinking about starting a new project. Um, it's still in the science of quality improvement. You don't want to measure too much, and you don't want to measure too little. You need to measure the right amount. Measurement alone does not improve quality. So recently there was a um, study that came out that some people like to point out, the National Surgery um, Quality Improvement Project. And they said, um, you know, we've collected all these variables and we looked at all these complications and they didn't change over time. Well, that's not really a quality improvement project. That's measuring and it can be expected that that would not have created any substantial change. What you need to know is units who took that data, did they use it to do quality improvement and did those units get better? Um, you don't have to measure a ton. You can use sampling to your advantage. If you want to know about reliability, take five records and look at them. Talk to five staff. You do not need to do a multi-month, multi-week, you know, kind of baseline study. You do need to have a little bit of idea of where your current state is, but you don't want to spend forever in this portion of the project. Right? You never want to be involved in a project that's just collecting data week after week after week after week and doesn't do anything with that. Right? Um, the other thing to remember is that the people doing the work need to be the ones collecting the data. You have to involve the staff um, in every phase of the project, and the quality improvement people can be the ones that assemble the charts for them, but the actual data collection does need to be done by the people who do the work. And there are ways you can do this without making it burdensome. So, you know, use, as I said, sampling to your advantage, you know, sample 10 charts a week instead of doing 100%. You'll be able to find this, and there's um, statistically sound ways to do that without having to look at 100% of your records. Don't get sloppy with your methods. So one of my recommended readings for this, which I think you're going to get um, after or it's referenced here, is a paper um, uh, by the group at Hopkins called Improving the Quality of Quality Improvement Projects. And it's a short paper. It's a decent read. Um, and it really is a call to action to use the similar methodology and similar quality of data collection that you would for research when you're doing your quality improvement projects. You don't want to just say, oh, well, this is only QI, and therefore my methods don't matter as much. Um, things like bias, confounding, um, you know, other um, validity measures still matter very much, and I would say even more in quality improvement because you're going to be asking people to alter the way they do their jobs with real stakes for the patients you're taking care of based on their results. So you'd like to develop the most rigorous study design possible without um, disrupting normal work excessively. Um, you can incorporate data collection into the usual activities of the professional staff, um, and you want to try to do everything possible not to sacrifice your data quality. This is a big one. This is another thing if you take away from today, I'd be very happy, um, is on this idea of misinterpreting run charts. So a run chart is something that shows your process and outcome, process or outcome, over time, right? And so if you guys seen these for different projects, they show up on posters, they show up, um, and the, the highest quality run chart gives you, you know, you just kind of look at it. So this is the one from the University of North Carolina. They actually share publicly on their webpage. You can go and look at it right now. Um, you need to know, as I said, whether higher is better or lower is better. And then the best run charts really show where interventions were made. So here you're able to see where they started a hand hygiene immediate feedback project, um, and then later a nurse driven fully removal. And this lets you take a look and, and, and um, interpret the impact of your um, interventions. So there's some rules for interpreting this. And one of my least favorite things is sometimes we'll go to a you know, quality meeting or reviewing data have three points that are trending up and they say, oh, we're trending up, that's great. We're doing the right, the right thing, right? Or they get one point that's lower and all of a sudden, you know, who's responsible for that? What happened? 
you really need to use statistical methods when you're interpreting run charts. So I'm going to talk about a couple different types of um, changes you can have in a run chart, and I'd like you to look at these the next time you see one of these um, being presented in a meeting, and also think critically about whether the person who's interpreting that for you is using these rules correctly, because these are statistically um, important um, methods. So the first rule is what you're, when you're looking for a shift, all right? A shift is six or more points that are above or below the median. If you have a point that's on the median, don't include that point, just skip it and keep counting. So you need to have um, you know, six that are grouped together or below to call something um, a shift from the baseline. A trend is five or more consecutive points that are all increasing or all decreasing. And there, if two consecutive values are identical, you skip the second one and keep counting, okay? So you don't have a trend until you have five data points. It's really important. So what this tells you is you need to measure more often. If you're getting quarterly data, it's going to take over a year to tell if you have a trend or not. Okay. So um, you know, weekly, uh, bi-monthly, or every two weeks, um, you know, uh, data points are probably better when you're looking to make rapid, rapid changes in a project. You also want to assess for stability. Um, this concept of a run is where the um, the line you know that you're drawing to connect points crosses over the median. There's actually a statistical table that you can look at based on how many total data points you have on the chart that should tell you how many runs you have. If you have too few runs, that means something is something, some force, whether or not it might be your intervention, it might not, is sort of suppressing that um, variation in one way or another, um, and that you actually have something that you can attribute to, um, to something that, or you likely can attribute to something that's going on. Um, and then you also want to keep an eye out for astronomical data points. These can be sort of special cause. This might be the day before Christmas. Um, you know, in terms of number of patient visits or something like that. So you kind of just want to be on the lookout for this um, and don't overreact to them. Another thing I'd like you to avoid um, as you uh, enter um, safety and quality work is quantifying safety with spontaneous reporting data. So does anybody use the event reporting system here in the hospital? There's right, my safety team. Um, spontaneous reporting data is really valuable for your continuous learning culture and as a leader, and as a physician, you are a leader in safety, whether or not you um, have a title for that or not. Um, if you use that data incorrectly, um, people will stop reporting it entirely. So if you say, all right, the only way I'm gonna get my data for self-extubations is to have self-extubations you know, be reported in the computer every time they happen, and I expect that self-extubations will go down. What's gonna happen to the data? It's gonna go down. People will stop reporting it. Um, self-extubations may still happen in your unit, but they won't get reported. Um, and you lose that opportunity to learn from it. So you don't want to have things be counts of data. It can be useful for anecdotes to learn from, but you do not want to use that as your numerator when you're talking about safety events, okay? So be very careful um, of whether you overtly or subtly discourage spontaneous reporting, because that's a, being able to report events spontaneously is a really important part of your culture. All right, for the last couple minutes, I'm just going to talk a little bit about physician leadership and patient safety and quality. Um, some things I want you to pay attention for specifically as um, a physician leader. And the one of the do's here is to respect your stakeholders and your team. So think broadly when you're trying to assemble your team. Who is directly or indirectly impacted by a process change in the ICU? So call some things out. Who's impacted? Physicians, I'll give you that one. Who else? Nurses? Respiratory, Respiratory therapists. Patients? Families? Who else? Pharmacy? Techs, patient care techs, the unit clerk. The nurse manager might be, because he or she has to devote different staffing resources, probably to do some of the data collection analysis for most projects. 
um, critical care operations. If the MICU decides it wants to do a project, um, there has to probably be some thought about whether that project will be able to be spread to other hospitals so you don't have nine different units doing nine different things. And that has to go into the planning phase. Consulting residents, people who don't normally work in your unit, IT, all different kinds of people. So you want to think broadly. You don't have to bring all of them to the table at the same time, but you do want to um, you know, consider all those different uh, viewpoints when you're planning a project. Another thing that's important to do is understand that when you go into these conversations about quality improvement, you are negotiating. And it's very helpful to be able to learn to differentiate people's interests from their positions. So um, you might have somebody say, absolutely not. There's no way I'm filling out this handover sheet. That's a position. All right, so what's their interest? Well, they're you know, feeling overworked and they don't want more stressors on their time. And so you know, we did this in the um, PACU recently. We said, if you do this, you may get called less often later. And they said, I don't believe you. And so we ran a small test and we showed that for the five people who tried it, they got called less frequently. Well, now we have a much more strong argument to bring back to the larger group. And so you can kind of build. So you, but if you have to understand why people either want something or are refusing to do something when you start off with your project. Um, the interest might be obvious, they might be emotional, they might be unknown, people might not want to tell them to you, um, but you, can't, you don't want to neglect them and you don't want to forget about things like appreciation. People want to feel valued and heard, autonomy, role, people um, want to be doing something that gives value and meaning, and th those touchy-feely things can become really important in the success or failure of a quality improvement project. You also want to know your own interests. And pay attention a little bit to your style. Are you, you know, competing, we're going to do things my way, collaborating, um, and some other uh, negotiation principles like that. Finally, I would say on behalf of a lot of groups that I sit in, please learn how to run an effective meeting if you're going to lead a, lead a project. Some really good resources there. I don't have time to get into all of that, but your team will want to work with you and they'll respect you um, and you'll be much more successful if you can run a, a fast and efficient meeting um, only when you need to rather than, oh, it's time for that dreaded monthly handover meeting again. Um, finally, one of my um, recommended readings is on the idea of championing standardization, which I think is really important for physician leaders. This is a call to action to eliminate unwanted variation in the way we provide our patient care. Right? Um, why should we standardize if we pretty much get it all right? And there's two reasons that it become pretty compelling when you start to think about building the reliability of a process. It's easier to orient people to a new system if you're standardized. And it's easier to improve because you don't have to account for a lot of the different um, you know, personal preferences or variability. What you need to reassure your fellow clinicians of is that there are reasons to vary. The patient condition may require you to vary, and patient preference, although that can be uh, mitigated by good counseling, should cause you to vary. Reasons not to vary are that's how we did it where I trained, or I prefer to do it this way. Okay? So if you're, lo you're looking, again, not to have 100% um, standardization, you're probably trying to hit 80 to 90%. Um, there, but there are going to be patients who require, um, you know, special circumstances. We're not going to be able to have the level of um, reliability that nuclear power does because we have a little bit more of a complex um, interaction with our patients. This paper, the Zen and um, the Art of Physician Autonomy Maintenance, um, has some, it's again, a short paper, I think it's really worth, worth your read, has some good counter arguments to things like um, protocols stifle innovation, and it's cookbook medicine, and some things that may have actually come out of your mouth at one point, actually gives you a good, um, a good up counter take on that from the quality improvement side. Um, there are some sins that go along with spreading. So let's say you have a project that really was successful. It's time to send it out to other units, all right? One way to fail is to start large and say, okay, this worked in the MICU, we're gonna do it for every single ICU, all right? So you have to pay attention to the individual settings that you're taking a project into. 
When you spread a project, you don't want to find one person to do it all. You're looking for early innovators and for adopters, early adopters in those units, and I'll show you a slide on that in a second. You don't want to um, rely on hard work and vigilance to solve all your problems. There may need to be customization that you make when you're trying to spread an idea from one unit to the other, and that's okay. Takes you into that, that um, cycle of quality control, quality um, improvement, and quality planning. If a pilot works, um, I would recommend not expecting it to work everywhere unchanged. You don't want to require the person who did the pilot to drive the spread. You need to find new people in each place that you're going to sort of take up a cause um, and make it personalized for that unit. Because if you have somebody come um, from your unit, they're going to have a lot more ethos and authority than having somebody come from another unit and say, this is how you're going to do it now. Um, again, you want to look at your measures often enough to be able to detect those five points that make a trend. Um, and you don't want to expect improvement in outcomes early without paying incredibly detailed attention to the process. Wherever you can, you want to eliminate ambiguity in your expectations. Um, who's going to do it? When are they going to do it? How are they going to document that it was done? Um, and really lay all that out. If you pay a very detailed attention to those things, your project's more likely to succeed. Um, I just like this, again, as a concept of when you are looking to spread a change to another unit, you're looking for your early adapters. Um, the early majority cares about some people. They, they want to know how's this working for some people, and the late majority is going to, really you're going to have to show them that it's working for almost everybody to get them to take up your change. Um, the laggards are also called traditionalists, um, to be a little more uh, friendly to that. Um, these are people that are going to be harder to bring on board. Um, you're going to need to think about the energy that it's going to take to expand. Remember, you're trying to get 80% to 80%. If you think you need to get them on board to um, get higher than that, you can use peer pressure, you can eliminate alternatives. Um, there are some kind of strong arm tactics, but it's very helpful to have leadership support to do that. All right, so that's the end of what I have to do. This is the small pep talk portion, um, which is that you can do this. It seems very overwhelming to go into a new system and think that you're gonna be able to make a change, but you are positioned um, in a way that you're, you know, um, you, you, what you think and what you do carries weight, um, and it carries more than you think. Um, I think the things that help make projects successful um, for the physician leaders are eternal optimism um, and the willingness to just sort of, you know, duck under the wave and pop back up and say, okay, and that's why I use the whack-a-mole. Um, you know, you're going to fail sometimes, and you just have to show that you're willing to show up, you're committed to your aim, you're willing to work with people, and that you're not going to go away, and people will find a way to work with you. This is um, to show that I do have a sense of humor about all this, um, which is one of my favorite things. It says, the race for quality has no finish line, so technically it's more like a death march. It also hangs in my office. And if you do want to know more about this, there's a lot of, you know, I hate to sound too much like a business consultant, but there are a lot of good books that teach you some pretty concrete ways to get people to listen to your ideas, um, some ways to look at organizations and, and sort of learn how to identify those barriers against risk. Um, some interesting social science work on team culture and team behaviors, um, and then the idea of just culture, which is um, balancing safety with accountability, I think are all really important for physician leaders to um, add to their toolbox. HRQ has a lot of good um, uh, you know, publications. Um, as I said, I'm, I, I'm a fan of the IHI collection in the Open School, which is free to you while you're a fellow, um, so that if you, you can go beyond those required modules and take some of their courses. And then SCCM has a, a couple good links, too. And that's it. Any questions?